He's one of our favorite guests because he's a good guy and he knows a lot. Todd Zola of MastersBall.com, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Hello, babe. I'm Lou Gehrig. Listen, Lou, how did you get the stocking home run? It was like this. I watched you and read how much money you were getting, and I got to thinking. Thinking? With what? First. Yes. I mean the fellow's name. Who? The guy on first. Who? The first base. Who? The guy playing first. Who is on first? I'm asking you who's on first. That's the man's name. That's whose name? Yes. Well, go ahead and tell That's me. That's it. That's who? Yes. <laughs> Don. <laughs> hey, Don. Tell Barry about the time you won the game when you slid into home plate. <laughs> oh, Jack, I'd rather not. I'm embarrassed. <laughs> I don't blame you. Tell me, did they ever find that catcher? <laughs> Those pitchers try to hit you. You play baseball, and you got to stay in there because the guy throws a curveball at you. It may break across the plate, and your mind says, "Stay in there," but your body says, "Let's. We got to move." <laughs> baseball is played on a diamond in a park, the baseball park. Football is played on a gridiron in a stadium. War Memorial Stadium. In baseball, you wear a cap. In football, you wear a helmet. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for the week of June the 30th and show number 24 of the 2012 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and in addition to Todd Zola of MastersBall.com, we'll have our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com. Our National League analyst is Harold Nichols. Our American League analyst, columnist Matt Beagle, also our Market Pulse commentator this week, talking about when we will see some creative lineup construction like we're seeing in Colorado's new pitching management. In our regular minor league minute, Rob Gordon looks at Pittsburgh second baseman Alan Hansen. And in Master Notes, BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler is out of the lineup, so I'll be pinch hitting, also talking about the Colorado pitching rotation and what it means for fantasy owners. It's another big show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The first half is wrapping up. We gotta talk some baseball. And it's the first inning of our show, our League Watch News reports. Matt Beagle is on deck with players from the American League. And leading off, it's the National League and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Good to be here. Nick, let's start uh, down in Miami. Hanley Ramirez came into this season, and everybody's big question was, is he going to be able to handle the move from shortstop to third base because of Jose Reyes' arrival, of course? And actually, he's done that pretty well. But what we weren't wondering was about his offense, and maybe we should have been. Maybe so. You know, you look at uh, last year, Henry Ramirez did not have such a good year, but he had, some, had had an injury, and so you could discount a lot of it. But if you look at, at what's happened this year with Henry Ramirez, uh, not a lot looks good in terms of his, his offensive production, and it doesn't look just like bad luck. Uh, a year ago, he hit uh, expected batting average 265. This year, he's hitting 258 with an XBA of 264. So looks like we've got a new level of, of batting average for Henry Ramirez that's dropped from that 300 level he was showing a few years ago to something that's not quite as uh, as attractive. And 
uh, and the, the the peripherals that go along with that are down as well. His contact rate has dropped from uh, 83% down to 80. His walk rate has dropped was 14% in 2008. That's down to 9%. Uh, so not as much patience. So seeing some problems certainly in terms of Henry Ramirez getting back to the kind of batting average he used to have. The other thing that we, we note slowing down is his speed. I mean, that's been something that's been happening over the past few years. Uh, gradual drop in his speed from a really elite kind of speed production down to a, a league average or just below average. Uh, and so uh, certainly it, uh, as he ages, we don't expect that to come back. Power has bounced back a little bit this year, but that's really the only good news. And, and that's been helped by an increased fly ball rate. But um, I, this, I, I certainly think it's, uh, we, we shouldn't expect the old Henry Ramirez to suddenly reappear. No, but I, I think the record looks like he's bounced back from 2011. In 2011, he was just bad, and, and this year, I mean, he's already surpassed last year's home run total. He'll catch up with his own RBI total in the next couple of days. He's halfway to his stolen base total, and we're not quite halfway to the uh, to the 162-game mark. And his average is up 17 points over last year, so uh, I think he's more value in 012 than he was in 011 but you're right about going back further when he was a, a mid 30s sometimes low 40 dollar player i think maybe the best we can hope for now nick is what 25 26 dollar type player still good but not great yeah i would think so i mean i think you know coming into the season there was a lot of discussion of this is this guy really a uh, a first round draft pick he's not anymore i think he's really dropped down to he's still a good shortstop good shortstop uh, probably okay at third base uh, but certainly not the kind of guy that you uh, that you want to pick in the first or second round. Yeah, it's interesting how that happens, but uh, happens it does. And he's only 28, and, and that's kind of surprising because we generally expect that a player's peak production is going to start around 26 or 27 and then carry on in a in a nice high plateau through the age 31, 32, even, even longer now with health improvements and so on. So it uh, it does come as a bit of a surprise that he seems to have started on his decline so relatively early in his life. Yeah, very definitely. I think the other thing to remember is the switch from, from shortstop to third base may cause a, a certain uh, shift in his value as well. And maybe for the better, it's hard to find third baseman. Something else I wonder about, Nick, is when he was a, a $30 player, I mean, in 2007, he, he got very near to $50 in value. It was a sensational year with 29 homers and 51 RBIs and and a uh, 332 batting average. That was a terrific year. He had 639 at-bats that year, Nick. Last year, when he was really struggling, 338 at-bats because of various injuries. And don't you wonder if some of those injuries are just nagging along still? Yeah, you know, you, you certainly have to. And if you look at the, uh, even at the at-bat total this year, he's going to, uh, 279 halfway through, not, not too bad, but he's not going to reach that total of 2007 again. No, more like 580 or something like that, assuming he doesn't get hurt badly enough that he's going to have to miss any real time. Uh, moving on to the New York Mets, uh, staying in the National League East, uh, we have another closer go-round going. Of course, uh, Frank Francisco in New York is on the DL, and nobody knows for how long, and there's been a mad rush in the fab bidding all over the place to try to identify who's going to be the next closer. The winner for now, at least, seems to be Bobby Parnell. At least that's been the announcement, and, and certainly that's not something that's in terms of skills is unexpected. We've been uh, touting Parnell for a while now, and here's a guy with an uh, elite uh, an elite BPV, uh, 132, excellent dominance, striking out a batter in an inning, good control, XCRA 3.12, uh, certainly everything you would, you would want out of a good closer. And I think the only question is, once he gets in that role, can he actually close out ball games? And his record in that regard has not been very good. He's been at about a 50% uh, success rate uh, a year ago in terms of, of save opportunities. So um, 
that would be the question is, is he actually going to be able to close out games once he gets the chance to do it? And, of course, a lot of that will depend on who's he closing them against, what's the situation. I mean, the save rule is so dumb where, you know, he could be asked to save a game with, uh, you know, the, the other team's best hitter at the plate and the bases loaded and nobody out and a one-run lead and he could get a save or not, or he could be called upon to get... Uh, you know, one out with uh, with nobody on base and the other team's worst hitter, uh, you know, coming up, and it's still a save situation if he's got a three-run lead. So the save situation thing, I think, can be a bit misleading. Also, uh, a guy like Parnell being six for 12 in what are called save opportunities, this is something that's really unfair about the rule, is that if you come in in the seventh or eighth inning in what would be a save situation, then you're you're credited with a save opportunity no matter what happens, but you can't get a save. That's right, very definitely. So so that that's kind of unfair as well. Uh, Parnell's got the skills. I guess the other question is, Nick, is this a long-term thing? Because although Francisco's skills are not up to Parnell's skills, at least so far this year, he's been walking quite a few guys. He's had a fairly high hit rate. Uh, but he had converted 10 of 11 going back to May 14th before he went on the DL. And a lot of times managers don't like to take a guy's job away just because of injury. And so there's a decent chance that if Parnell scuffles even a little bit when Francisco comes off the DL, and this is an oblique strain, so it's probably, what, four weeks or so, that uh, maybe Parnell's tenure will be restricted. Yeah, I think that's probably true. I think there's a good chance Francisco will get the job back. As you said, uh, converted 10 of his last 11, So, and that's pretty good. So. Uh, my guess is that Francisco will get the job back, but you know certainly have to look at Parnell as uh, as somebody who could become the closer down the line uh, if Francisco has moved to another team or, or that sort of thing. Over in Milwaukee, Nick, uh, one of the things that they had going, they thought going into the year was a pretty solid starting rotation, but now uh, Sean Markham's gone on the DL, and Michael Fires was going to uh, be bouncing around a, a little bit. Now he looks like he's going to stick in the rotation, even with Marco Estrada coming back. Of course, Markham's loss means uh, the rotation opening stays there. How do we like Michael Fires' uh, chances for, and I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, how do we like his chances for succeeding in the role? I think we like his chances a lot for succeeding in the role. Here's a guy who's been displaying absolutely outstanding skills this season. A 126 BPV, a dominance of almost a strikeout per inning, only walking 1.4 batters per nine innings. Uh, so all, all the kinds of things you look for in a good starting pitcher you've got. Excellent command, uh, keeps the ball in the park. So uh, at this point, a 2.70 ERA, a 3.41 uh, expected earn run average. He could stick very well in the rotation, I think. Uh, someone should definitely look at, uh, at picking up. And, uh, you know, he got a start this week uh, against, uh, against the, at the White Sox, seven and two-thirds innings, no earned runs, uh, struck out seven, walked only one. Uh, that's a pretty good audition for the rotation. One fly in the ointment, and again, all of these are very small sample sizes this year, 33 innings only, so have to take everything with a grain of salt. But his fly ball percentage is up around 40, and his ground ball percentage down around 35. So that's a bit of a cautionary note because his home run per fly ball rate is only 5%, which has helped him keep his home run per nine rate down to about half a home run per game. If that goes up to 10%, then all of a sudden he's going to be a home run per game, and his 77% strand rate's likely to come down, his ERA is likely to rise anything can happen because as i said it's a very small sample but it's something to be aware of yeah very definitely something to be aware of if you look at his, his pqs logs for the year he's had uh, he's made five starts four of those have been pqs dom the one that was not he allowed two home runs so uh you you have a point there i think uh, patrick and uh, something to keep in mind 
And finally, another pitcher joining rotation in San Diego. They have a lot of good young pitchers in the minors, and uh, they're starting to bring them up because of uh, injuries and ineffectiveness. But Andrew Kashner, a lot of people have been looking at Andrew Kashner, uh, is back and he's going to be in the San Diego rotation. You know, Andrew Kashner is a guy we liked a lot at the start of last season, and then he was out uh, out all year with uh, with a rotator cuff injury. Uh, and this is a guy with outstanding dominance. I mean, uh, strikes out more than a batter per nine innings. Uh, has had a, a very a very strong BPV, 73 BPV, a good XERA, 3.25. They've sent him down to get him stretched out, and he's done well getting stretched out in the minor leagues. But a couple of cautions, I think, on Andrew Kasher. First of all, his control rate has not been good. He's walked 5.7 batters per nine innings so far this season, and it's 28 innings he's pitched. And that's been a problem for Kasher throughout his career is a high, a high walk rate. Uh, and that's something that could really haunt him as he moves into the rotation. Uh, the other thing to uh, to think about in terms of Kashner is uh, he was only only did, made three starts in the minors trying to get stretched out, so he's not likely to go very deep into ball games at this point. Uh, he might get his five innings in, but uh, I would expect uh, for at least a while that he won't be pitching a lot longer than that, and that may make it hard for him to get wins. And pitching for San Diego is going to make it hard to get wins too, because it's not like they're going to nail eight runs to the board every night when you're uh, pitching for them. Very definitely, so it makes it even worse if you have to go out in the fifth or sixth inning. One good uh, note about Kashner that we should point out is that he's given up a fair number of home runs so far this uh, year, Nick. He's giving up about a home run per nine innings, which is kind of weird because he's a 55% ground ball guy and only 19% fly balls, and the culprit there is a 23% home run per fly ball rate, which like a quarter of his fly balls are going out of the yard, which seems really astonishing given the fact that he's pitching in San Diego at least part of the time. Yeah, very definitely. I think, you know, that's just bad luck, and that's got to get better. All right, Nick, thanks very much. We're going to talk to you again in a week's time on our special Baseball HQ Roundtable Edition to celebrate the halfway point. Harold Nichols is the Director of Skills Analysis at BaseballHQ.com and our National League newsman here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's move to the American League, and BaseballHQ.com columnist Matt Beagle joins us. Matt, welcome back to the show. Great to be back, Patrick. Sure can't believe it's almost the All-Star breaks right here. Uh, the first half of the season has just flown by trying to keep up with all the injuries on your fantasy rosters, and now the trades are starting. Indeed, the trades are starting, and there will be plenty more, I'm sure, but the big one right away, Kevin Euclid goes from Boston to Chicago. How do we like uh, Euclid as a White Sox? Well, Euclid has long showed great skills, uh, on-base patience, nice power, and it's going to be accentuated in U.S. cellular field that increases right-handed homers by 38%. Uh, the only question is if Euclid's health can hold out. He has a back injury, and that's going to sap your power. He's only had a 98 PX, basically league average power, so far in 2012. Uh, we've also seen his contact rate decline 4% to 73%, and his walk rate decline about 5% down to 9%. Still above average, but much lower than his traditional thing. It's obviously, he's been pressing. He's been getting the pressure to hold on to his job from Will Middlebrooks. And Chris Olson did a nice job in the playing time today segment this week talking about the Red Sox situation. Uh, Euclid is a health issue. If he's healthy, we know he has excellent skills. And U.S. Cellular, being friendly to batters, will bring that out. If he's not healthy... I don't think that uh, Kenny Williams gave up too much in a utility player and a young pitcher who wasn't really in their plans to take a chance. I think there's a lot of upside here and very little downside. 
And not only that, but the White Sox aren't even paying that much. The Red Sox agreed to pay most or all of Euclid's salary for the rest of the year, five or six million bucks. For them, it's only money, but basically for the White Sox, it amounts to a free roll. Uh, we should also point out that when you add up uh, Euclid's declining skills, his expected batting average is now under 250, which is a career low. So be very cautious if you're thinking that Euclid is likely to become a 300 hitter, even in the cozy confines of U.S. Cellular. What about the other side of the trade map? Will Middlebrooks takes over at third base for Boston. He started the year with a bang. I guess the question is, can he keep it up? Middlebrooks is very much the opposite of Euclid. He's not a patient hitter. Uh, Euclid has been known, even since his college days, profiled in Moneyball as the Greek god of walks. But Middlebrooks is a below-average walk rate, only 5%, and his eye is only 0.19. So there's no way his 331 batting average is going to last. His expected batting average is 293, so we know that it's going to correct itself, especially with that lack of plate patience. He has had great power, though, with a 177 power index, and I don't know if he can translate that full power, maintain that for uh, the entire season, or if it's going to decline as well second time around the league as pitchers adjust and get the book on Middlebrooks somewhat. Yeah, I think Middlebrooks is going to be a very problematic guy for fantasy owners. He looks very attractive, but I think there's a lot of flaws in that swing and that approach. And as you said, when the book starts getting around on this guy, he could easily be a 230 hitter rather than a 330 hitter. And I'd bet closer to the former than the latter. Uh, The White Sox, as you mentioned, Matt, picked up uh, journeyman Brent Morrell as part of the deal, but they also got a young pitcher named uh, Zach Stewart, and I'm wondering what you think of him. Zach Stewart could be a a deep flyer in an AL-only league. While his surface stats are horrible, his 26% home run for fly ball rate is, is you know just horrible. It's a small sample size, but reality is it's going to be around 10 to 12%, and he's at 26%, so that should correct itself. Stewart has a 4-to-1 strikeout-to-walk ratio, a 52% ground ball rate, and a 4.06 expected ERA. Uh, so Stewart's still young, still developing, and he does have proven skills at the major league level. He's not going to be a superstar, but he's certainly someone to tuck in the back of your mind that's certainly forgotten in this deal. And what about uh, Franklin Morales, who's stepped up uh, and done a pretty good job for Boston while uh, all this is shaking out? Franklin Morales has had a great uh, start here. They weren't expecting him to come on, but he's had a 17-to-1 strikeout-to-walk ratio, uh, 130 base performance value in his two starts here. He's been very effective, but with Morales, it's all about his control, and historically he's had a very difficult time finding the plate consistently, uh, judging by his control rate. So it's unlikely Morales can keep it up, so someone like Stewart could emerge later on in the year if there's injuries or other uh, underperformance. Daisuke Matsuzaka is always a crapshoot, so you never know. Boston's could very well be short of pitching this year at some time, and Stewart could be a surprise answer later on the season if you want to take a flyer on someone. Well, another pitcher named Zach, Zach McAllister, has been called up by the Indians to replace uh, Jean-Marc Gomez, who struggled and got sent down. Is Zach McAllister the kind of guy that might uh, be interesting? Can he stick for the year? Zach McAllister, another deep flyer here. His four starts had PQS scores of 5, 4, 3, and 3. So that's two PQS quality starts and uh, two average ones. A 94 base performance value, which is excellent, excellent in his four May starts. He's given up two runs in 
or fewer in eight of his ten starts at Columbus and AAA, where he's got a 2.98 ERA, a 7.4 dominance, and a 2.9 command. So McAllister has all the skills. He's displayed them at the major league level with four starts. So again, if you need pitching, and there's going to be a lot of teams out there with all these injuries who need pitching, McAllister's worth a flyer. And the Indians quietly are sitting right near the top of the AL Central. They sort of change with the White Sox each day, who's in first, who's in second. But the Indians do have a solid lineup. They have a solid bullpen. So taking an Indian starter to speculate for some wins isn't really a bad idea. And McAllister is the latest in that line of starters there in Cleveland. Matt, you mentioned the Chicago White Sox. We've talked about Gavin Floyd before. He's really having a difficult year after a decent start. Gavin Floyd's ERA up over five now. And the question is, there's going to be a lot of people dropping this guy or offering him for trade. Is, is he worth looking at? He seems to have decent skills. Gavin Floyd's 520 ERA has been skewed by a 65% strand rate. His expected ERA is 362. He's actually doing better than last year with his base performance value at 101, which is very excellent for any pitcher in the major leagues. His dominance has risen from seven strikeouts to nine innings to 8.2. While his walk weight has crept up a little bit, it's still excellent for a 3.2 command. His other factor has been a 16% home run per fly ball rate. Even in U.S. Cellular, that's high for a starting pitcher. We would expect that to correct itself, and that's why his ERA is 362. He's not giving up hard-hit balls. His line drive rate is a low 17%. He is giving up more fly balls. He has a three-year rising fly ball trend. But overall, uh, he's been a pretty consistent pitcher with solid skills throughout. And with that command, we would expect him to improve, at least get his ERA down towards the, the 4, 430 area that he's posted the last two seasons. And you know what it could be, Matt, is a, an issue of pitching from the stretch. I, I checked into Gavin Floyd's numbers. With bases empty and men on base, his walk rates and strikeout rates are pretty much exactly the same. But his home run rate more than doubles when he has runners on, and his hit rate rises from about 28% with the bases empty to about 32% with runners on, which means he's going to have a higher batting average with men on. It's about 294 versus only about 232 with bases empty. So maybe it's a pitching from the stretch issue, which, which could mean that it's going to persist. I, I don't know. I guess we'll have to wait and see, but it's something to be a little bit wary about if you're looking at Gavin Floyd. Moving on to another American League Central pitcher, Matt, Doug Fister was a real pleasant surprise last year in Detroit after he got traded in from Seattle. He spent some time on the DL. What do you think about Doug Fister now that he's back on uh, the roster and in the rotation? Doug Fister really broke through in 2011 with a 283 ERA we thought it was a little bit of a fluke. We think he has solid skills, but his expected area was 345, had a high strand rate. And he has a high strand rate again in 2012, 81%. So we don't expect his 272 ERA to be the indicator of future value. We expect it to be up about half a run. Our current expected area on him is 3.27. Fister's got impeccable control, walking less than two batters per nine innings each of the last three seasons. And he's improved his strikeout rate the last three seasons, up to 7.2 in 2012. So he has a great 3.7 command. His home run per fly ball rate has normalized in 2012, um, but other factors have caused his ERA to remain lower. His expected ERA is on a three-year downward trend, so we do expect him to contribute if healthy. And that's the big question with Fister. Is he going to remain healthy? 
But here's a guy, when healthy, who's improving, shows excellent skills, and is a good shot if you're going to take a flyer on someone with a health risk. Matt, our special guest today in the feature interview will be Todd Zola of MastersBall.com. And one of the things I'm going to be asking Todd about is his research into how much you can move in the various categories as you try to improve your overall standings position. And I think one of the things, in my experience anyway, that you learn is that stolen bases is usually pretty hard to move in because the spreads between uh, first, second, third, all the way down to last are a little wider than they tend to be in some of the other categories. But if you can move in stolen bases in an American League league, you've got to be looking at Ben Revere of Minnesota. What do you think about Ben Revere? Ben Revere seems to be the new millennium's Juan Pierre as Pierre's playing time is cut in Philadelphia. Revere has that uh, the contact rate that's over 90%, 94% in 2012, up 3%. He's got blazing speed, a 133 speed score, and lots of stolen base opportunities, uh, 36% in 2012. And that's going to yield lots of stolen bases. He has very little power, but his high contact rate allows him to get on base. He's batting 320 this year. His expected batting average fully supports that at 317. Is a very low walk rate of 3%, but that contact rates want to keep him on base and keep him uh, impacting different categories throughout your counting stats. He's not a guy that's going to take the walk and not drive in any runs. You may get some surprise RBIs out of a Ben Revere. But it's a similar profile to Juan Pierre, no power, no walks, excellent contact rate, and lots of stolen base opportunities. If that can help you in your format, Ben Revere is for real, and his contact rate says he will be a high batting average hitter through the next several years of his career. And while he won't draw walks, Matt, I think there's a hidden element in on-base percentage that speedy guys don't get enough credit for, and that is not grounding into double plays. So far this year, Ben Revere has come to the plate 29 times with an opportunity to hit into a double play. He's only done it three times, which is less than 10%. A decent runner like Jose Bautista is up around 14% of double play opportunities hit into, and you get a really slow guy like Billy Butler is up around 17%. And because Revere legs out those potential double plays, it creates an extra opportunity to steal because he gets on first and he gets rid of the guy ahead of him to open up the stolen base opportunity at second. So guys who can run obviously are stolen base candidates, but guys who manage to stay out of double plays is even better. Uh, another guy who fits the profile, maybe even a little bit better of a candidate, Elvis Andrews of Texas. Elvis Andrews is off to a great start at 293. His expected batting average fully supports that at 289. His expected batting average was actually 291 last year when he only batted 279. The difference is his hit rate is higher this year. He's maintained his 87% contact rate, which is excellent. The difference between him and Revere is that Andrus can draw walks. A 10% walk rate in 2012 has helped him get on base more often. Another big difference, though, between him and Revere is that Andrus does not give as many stolen base opportunities. It's down to 18% in 2012. It was 26% in 2011. With all those big hitters in the Ranger lineup, um, they must not be giving him the green light as often. So all of his skills are improving somewhat, except this power, which is pretty much non-existent. Uh, that is improving, but there's really not much to get there as far as home run power. But uh, he gets on base more than Revere, so he has the same stolen base potential because even though he's not stealing as often, he's on base more frequently with that higher walk rate and a similar batting average. Uh, so if Andrus gets the green light a little more often, he could uh, increase his steals dramatically and outperform Revere from the shortstop position. 
But interestingly, his ground into double play rate is around 14% like Jose Bautista, so he costs himself some of the opportunities that he gains by the walks, and of course, as you said, he's not running as often. So as a pure stolen base play, Revere probably better than Elvis Andrews, although Andrews has the advantage of position at shortstop, as you mentioned. Uh, finally, Matt, the Toronto Blue Jays are really kind of reeling right now because of their pitching situation, but uh, they've also recalled designated hitter first baseman Adam Lind from AAA Las Vegas. He was sent down because he just wasn't doing much with the bat. Hit the heck out of the ball in AAA. Now he's back in the Blue Jays lineup. Uh, How do we play this as far as rostering Adam Lind? One of the problems with Adam Lind was his low 21% hit rate, and that caused a 186 batting average. He's never going to be a big contributor to your batting average category, but he does have power that can really help you. In Las Vegas, AAA hit 395 with a 669 a slugging percentage. Obviously, it's in the Pacific Coast League where batting stats are inflated. We did have eight home runs and 29 RBIs and 124 at-bats. So it's safe to say that Lean got himself back together and the Blue Jays are willing to give him another shot. His plate skills were really identical there as what he showed in Toronto, a 0.58i, an 11% walk rate, so he has nice plate patience, and a 79% contact rate, which really isn't that bad for a power hitter. So he just needs to improve his 86 power index. They're going to be looking for power from him out of the first base slot. A little bit of a batting average risk here, but I would bet in the second half that if he continues his patient approach and starts to drive the ball a little more often now that he's set himself right, Lind has performed well in the past, and I would expect him to be some nice power, hit 250-260 the rest of the way. All right, Matt, you'll be back in a few minutes with your Market Pulse commentary. What's it going to be about this week? The Market Pulse this week looks at lineups the way Colorado has looked at pitchers to see if there's some ways we can add some runs and some more production to Major League batting lineups. You can also use this in simulation as well. Yeah, it would be really good in sim games. Uh, And, of course, everybody's watching that Colorado Rockies rotation experiment with great interest. Uh, Matt, thanks very much for doing this. We have our special edition roundtable, BaseballHQ.com podcast next week, so we'll catch up with you again in two weeks' time. Look forward to it, Patrick. Matt Beagle is a columnist at BaseballHQ.com and covers the American League here at Baseball HQ Radio. Our feature interview with Todd Zola of MastersBall.com comes up next. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. You worried about getting fined? He's going on to get fined. I shouldn't get fined a dog not penny. He screws something up, but I get fined for it. He makes a bad call. All I'm doing is telling him in the dugout the ball's high. He's got rabbit ears and looks over at me, and then he throws me out of the game. Then he tells me I want chill time. Who should get fined? Why don't umpires get fined? I get fined. I can't throw him out. That's what bothers me about the game. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davin, and it's a pleasure now to be joined by one of the favorite guests of Baseball HQ Radio from MastersBall.com, ESPN, uh, and a host of other places. It's Todd Zola, everybody. Todd, welcome back to the show. Glad to be back, Patrick. Yeah, and we're really glad to have you. Todd, uh, what do you think was the big story of the first half in the 2012 fantasy baseball season? The big story, I think, is, is, is related to how, how pitching is changing, and it sort of it ties in with some more you know advanced analysis and that uh i'm not exactly sure how much of this is defense related and it's making our job as evaluators a little more difficult to be able to tell what performances are real and what performances are going to regress and you know whose skills are better 
and that sort of thing, both pitchers and hitters. I just, just think there's so much information out there now on, on, on pitchers' hot, uh, batters' hot zones and you know what hit pitches they can handle and, and defensive positioning. I mean, there's got to be a reason why uh, Babip has dropped 10 points in the past five years. And I, I think that it ties in, you know, so to me the biggest story is, is, the, is the, you know, the, the increased pitching and how it's going to impact our ability to figure out who's going to do better in the second or worse in the second half. And even uh, in the long run, how we're going to be able to, we're going to have to tweak all of our expectations uh, based on statistics that uh, certain hitters are going to move in a certain direction year over year because of they have are demonstrating certain skills because sometimes those skills aren't going to pan out. And I think it's interesting. I've been watching a lot of Toronto games because I live near there and they're relatively handy on TV. And uh, boy, they're they're being like Tampa, very aggressive in their shifting. They move Laurie out into short right field, and gosh, he's thrown ten guys out this year, Todd. Uh, on ground balls into the hole, the first second base hole, he picks them up 25 yards out in the outfield and throws a guy out at first base because he's got a good arm. And all of a sudden, if more teams adopt that, you're starting to see a lot of balls in play that would have been hits or not being hits. Maybe that accounts for some of that decline in hit rate or or babbit. Yeah, and you know, again, yeah, and exactly where you know, you, of course, the pitcher needs to be skilled enough to throw the ball, and you know, in one of the nine quadrants, if you break the plate into nine quadrants. But we know where hitters, you know, can handle the pitchers and where they can't handle them. And not only that, and what pitches they can handle in each zone. So, in the infant with computers and 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 the, you know, transfer of technology is a piece of cake nowadays. I think that you know, game plans are such that you know you can attack a hitter in his weakest, you know, in his weakest zone and, and make him a lesser of a hitter too. In uh, a recent ESPN column, your columns are called Under the Microscope, where you do some real in-depth looking at, at how analysis is going. You talked about the increasing granularity of where pitching analysis is headed. So let me ask you, where is pitching analysis headed? Right now, we, we, you know, we're, we're at the point where we're really good at showing or explaining what has happened. Now, so I'm, we need to use that data. We need to build up enough of an archive of that data to see what of these things are now predictive. I mean, we're talking, you know, we've talked before about how it's no longer line drive, fly ball, and ground ball. It's how hard, you know, those balls are hit. What of, which of those skills are, you know, the ability, does a pitcher have an ability to induce weaker contact? I mean, right now we can't tell. It's one or two years' worth of data, if that. We need to be able to tell if that's a skill or if we're just still looking at noise. You can break the whole, you know, swinging strike in and out of the zone, contact in and out of the zone. Certain pitchers get more swinging strikes or, or more called strikes. We're still, you know, the data hasn't been collected long enough to know if these are, 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 are sustainable skills. So I think that's what we need to do is, you know, right now you can look at it and go back and say, well, he struck out more people because you know, he got more swinging strikes. We just don't know if that's a sustainable skill. So I think it's just collecting the data and waiting till we have enough of a sample so it's significant enough to draw, you know, predictive conclusions. Is it possible we could do a shortcut where we say, I want to find the next uh, Justin Verlander, or, or I want to find the next Roy Halladay or guys like that, so I'm going to go back and look at their stats, and then um, I'm going to infer from their rate of outside-the-zone swings or whatever that uh, some young pitcher who has a similar profile but hasn't really showed up on the radar screens yet might be the next Justin Verlander based on that? Well, I, I don't know how, I mean, it depends on how long the data has been collected. Uh, some of this stuff is, is fairly recent, so I don't know, you know, and then 
the other thing about it is some of this stuff is subjective, hard hit, soft hit, that sort of thing, and some of it, you know, can be measured more, you know, more tangibly. So, you know, that's a factor as well. The bias is involved with the actual generation of the data. But yeah, but that's what that's what all that's what all you know forecasting is is is, is finding what happened in the you know looking for a certain profile and seeing what that profile has done over the years. I just you know I'm just not sure how much of a database we have with with some of this data to be able to consider things significant. You know, you can say on the other hand, you know, at least this guy fits. Verlander's profile. At least he has the chance to do what Verlander did. Uh, so I, you know, sometimes we're at the point now where you have to almost manage on a leap of faith. Uh, but the, you know, things are just still randomness. Some people are gonna, you know, be higher or lower just due to regular noise. And I don't know. It's you know, it's it's almost if you want to, do you increase your odds even incrementally because it's happened in the past a couple of years? I mean, I'm not, I think it depends on what we're talking about, but I can, you know, I think that's the idea anyway, to look at what's happened in the past. And it's interesting when you talk about incremental improvements, because really that's what it's all going to be from now on. It's, we're not going to have a, a, a gigantic leap forward in this kind of thing where all of a sudden we're going to know with some kind of certainty that a, a certain young pitcher is going to explode onto the scene and, and just be great based on these relatively arcane statistics. It's going to be, you know, before we had a, 65% chance of being right about this pitcher, and now it's 68%, which is enough to win if everybody else is back at 65, but it's not like we go from 65 to 95. Right, and the other thing, too, is, I and mean, Bill James talks about in his, in his essay about getting you know, lost in the fog, there's still going to be noise. So if you know, a 3% incremental gain can be wiped out if there's 6% of noise that's still there. You know, of course, I mean, it, it, over the long over a long haul, a gain is a gain, and things wash out. But you know, a season might not be long enough for everything to even out. I totally agree with that. It's a, I think it's a grave misnomer to believe that a that a baseball season, which is an arbitrary division of time in the first place, but that it it is large enough of a sample to say that we know anything with certainty about it. I know that uh, there are a lot of analysts that I've spoken with over the years, Todd, that say you really need to have ten thousand at bats, roughly, or ten thousand batters faced before you have a real firm handle on what this guy's skills are. And the problem is that in a in amassing ten thousand at bats or ten thousand batters faced this guy's got a lot older over that time period so there's going to be some fall off in the skills that you really prized in looking for them and not to mention i mean every year you know there's six months or four months in between you know seasons so you know did the guy get married did he put on a couple pounds did he take off pounds you know did he you know did he get hurt and you know over you know so it's it's not even a continual thing so there's all sorts of other variables that just you know mess up the bias a little bit as well so you know that's that's you know that's that's why we have to remember you know none of this is you know it's it's we just try to make the best decision you know you the, the process is the thing and then just let the chips fall where they may yeah there's always going to be that element of luck because they're baseball players they're human beings Todd, in your article about this pitching analysis, you also mentioned Max Scherzer. And last week in our Baseball HQ Roundtable, Ron Chandler picked Max Scherzer as his pick-to-click in the second half of this season. Not everyone agreed with him. What did your analysis say about Max Scherzer? I agree he is a pick-to-click. I, I have this this theory. I think we've talked about it a little bit before. It's still in the anecdotal stage. I have the, the wind-up guy versus stretch guy theory where every pitcher is two pitchers. 
and sometimes, uh, in theory, you're better from the windup and the stretch. And if you get a couple of unlucky hits, you know, leading off an inning, suddenly you're thrown from the stretch, and now you're a less skilled pitcher, and things can just sort of just balloon and mushroom from there. So, in any guy that has you know a high BABIP and now is going from the stretch, you know what? I'm not so sure. He's you know I think that out, that increases the chances that he's uh, that, that that he gets in trouble. And I think a lot of that could be happening with, with Scherzer. You know, the K rate's still you know insane. The walk rate comes down. You know, let's let's see what happens when he gives up fewer hits and he can go from the windup more. And uh, you know, and 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 be you know, the walks come down. Everything else comes down. Right now, and even the walks are pretty good at this point. It's just the you know, the hit rate is just insane. And as Ron Chandler pointed out in that roundtable, when you're getting ground balls towards uh, Prince Fielder at first, and uh, Miguel Cabrera at third, and Johnny Peralta at shortstop, chances are your BABIP's going to be a little higher than you'd like it, even at the best of times. Uh, this is Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Todd Zola from Masters Ball and ESPN and lots of other places. And Todd, in an earlier column, you did some math to demonstrate that the ratio categories in roto scoring, batting average, earn run average, and whip, can be fruitful areas for gain in a roto environment. How does that work? Uh, long story short is if you normalize the standings, and what I mean by that is just make, make all the categories to be the same unit so that you know the, 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 all the stats maybe add up to the same number. You find out that the ARA and the whip and the batting average are actually more tightly bunched to each other. There's just there 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 there's less of a, a there's less of a distance between uh, adjacent people in the category. So you don't need to move as much. And I know that innings and at bats mount, but if you figure if you if you if you look at it that. Over the course of a season, almost all the teams are going to have you know similar amount of at bats and similar amount of innings. You can almost think of it as a counting category where batting average is not really batting average; it's hits, and ERA isn't really you know ERA; it's earned runs. So I know you know it's a little different because they're not the same innings. But the point being, the number of earned runs and the number of hits are more tightly bunched if you normalize than home runs and RBIs and saves and wins, etc. So you don't need as much as much movement in order to, uh, to to gain. And then the other thing, as opposed to the other categories, you, your opponent can come down to you, <laughs> as opposed to you know you can go up and they can come down. So there's there's movement in both directions. Now I'm not saying that you know you can go from you know tenth to third in the ERA if you're struggling. But what I am saying is when you start to manage the categories at this point of year and you're looking to see where you can make one or two or three-point incremental gains, don't ignore ERA, whip, and batting average because you can make the same incremental gains in those as you can in the other categories. Now, as it turns out, if you follow it, and I challenge anybody to do this because I've done it year after year, uh, pick out your standings and take a look in September where the movement is. It's going to be in the uh, ratio categories. Yeah, and the other advantage I've noticed over the years of playing is that uh, you can manipulate the ERA and WHIP categories a lot by uh, addition by subtraction. If you've got a relatively high ERA, relatively high WHIP guy, and you know you're keeping him on because he gets you a few wins, you can say, you know what, to hell with him. I'll drop him and I'll pick up a Darren Oliver or I'll pick up a, a Mike Adams in Texas or somebody like that. And I'll eschew the wins, although you might not even, but I'll, I'll sacrifice the win potential in order to, to 
stop acquiring bad innings. Not not so much to get good ones, but just stop getting bad ones. Right, and there's no equivalent in in hitting to the middle reliever. Now, I mean, maybe maybe the the second catcher that doesn't play to get rid of the catcher that does play, but there's that, that you know that's not as much of an impact. As, yeah, the middle reliever is, is is very unique in fantasy baseball in, with that re, in that regard. Um, like you said, it's a balance between the wins and the Ks. But if you you know if you if you, then it just matters the plus minus the categories and deciding where you can gain and lose the most. In that same column, Todd, you wrote that, and I quote: "Trades and waiver pickups are not about player values or ranking. They're about the potential to gain points. Standings places are the true currency of rotisserie baseball. It's not a player's dollar value or rating." End of quote. Isn't it still surprising how many owners in roto leagues, even experienced veteran type owners, still don't get this basic fact? Yeah, I don't know. It just yeah, you, you look at the names, and you know, you look at the maybe a dollar value or a player rater or whatever, whatever. You, that you use uh, to do it, and it is it is so, sort of you know head scratching how it can be done. Um, you know, I, one of my favorite things to do is to trade you a air quote better player, and end up you know gaining more points in the standings because of it. Because maybe you're more likely to do the trade, uh, you know, because of it. You're fascinated by the name, or you know, or or, or you know maybe even need the player. But uh, it's, it's to me, it's one of the better trades to try to pull off when you start to manage the categories, is to purposely have it, you know, out of balance, quote on paper. Uh, but you know, and you know, the the whole deal, you know, it's it make your team better. Don't you know? And I understand. You know, some leagues have vetoes, and some leagues the commissioner can do it, and and maybe they don't look into it as much on the on the categorical nature. But uh, you know, that's. Really, as the owner, you know that's what you need to do is to make your team better. That's what you need to worry about. And in a recent uh, column on Masters Ball, your organized chaos column, you talked about how you think the fantasy industry is not doing a great job educating the playing public in some areas, including the one we just talked about. And in a subsequent column, you uh, you offered some examples. Uh, besides tr- the trade issue, what, what other things are we not doing such a good job e- educating the playing public about? Quite honestly, there's a whole bunch of things. That I, uh, that I, um, you know, that I could uh, go off on here, especially because there's just so many people out now, with with with, with the radio and with, with columns and stuff, giving advice. One of the big things, I think, is um, the, the not understanding that there's several different leagues out there, several different size leagues out there, and there's not a one size fits all sort of analysis to be able to give. You know, I mean, it, it, right now, you know, for for a pertinent example, if someone asks, you know, should I pick up uh, Trevor Bauer and drop, I don't know, uh, you know, some middle of the line pitcher, the answer, you know, the answer is, you know, Joe Saunders or or, or, or some, you know, Kyle Loesch. The answer is different depending on the league. Uh, you know, if it's a deep league, you know, maybe you don't want to take the risk. If it's a shallower league, and you know, you can absorb one bad start and drop them. You know, so there's a, not a one-size-fits-all answer. And I think too many people don't appreciate the fact that there isn't a one-size-fits-all answer, and they just give a generic answer. And that, you know, some people out there are, you know, no, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And other people are saying, okay, great, I'm going to go out and pick up Anthony Rizzo. Uh, so I think part of it is a non-appreciation that there's a, a whole bunch of different ways to play this game. 
Is it a case, though, Todd, of us not telling our readers and listeners? I know I feel like I mentioned that don't worry about winning the trade idea about 400 times a season in various venues, and could it be that they're just not listening or that they just don't buy it? it could, yeah, it could, there could be something about just not buying it for sure. Uh, you, know, it, you, know, just, you know, it's the same whenever you try to, you know, educate anybody on anything, you know, all you can do is explain it and, and give, you know, give the reasons, of course. And then, you know, it's sort of up to you at that point to, to, to take the information and, and either, you know, believe it or, or, you know, or what. But um, I think that's sort of the, the, the key is to don't, not just get on your soapbox and just say it is because I say it is. You know, you know what I try to do, though, is to try to give them some, uh, try to give them some, reason, give them some reasons. Uh, you know, another thing that I think, and I think we've talked about this a little bit, too, is the, the whole notion of, of hot and cold streaks. I think that to some people that are giving advice don't understand that there's no such thing. And they'll say, pick up Trevor Pluff because he's, he's on fire. Uh, or, 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 or don't, you know, or drop, or drop so-and-so because he's cold. When these hot and cold streaks are, are more often than not just a cluster of, of hits within a season. And who knows when he's going to fall off the cliff or, or, you know, get four hits the following night. And, you know, along those lines as well, is the, you know, so-and-so is 7 for 18 against a certain pitcher, get him in your lineup. This sort of stuff is becoming more and more rampant because of the, uh, the population, or the, the proliferation of the daily games. So I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, I think, there's, I think, you know, there's a lot of analysts out there who, who are using intuition, and sometimes intuition's wrong. And also, you you do hear an awful lot of that kind of thinking from uh, the broadcast booths, especially from the ex-players who who are constantly talking about uh, so and so's uh, on a hot streak since since June the fourteenth. He's hitting four twenty four, second highest in the American League, and stuff like that. And of course, a lot of people who play fantasy baseball watch a lot of baseball, and they hear this kind of stuff over and over again. You know, it is what it is, and it's going to happen. Uh, this is Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Todd Zola from ESPN and Masters Ball. And, Todd, I also liked your column back in mid-May about choosing which starting pitchers you want to use in a given week. And you came up with what I think is a really ingenious point system based on the number of starts a pitcher would have in the week, home versus away starts, park effects, the quality of the opposition, including the opponent's record relative to the pitcher's handedness, all of which really interesting, and I don't want to have, go into a lot of detail about that. I was really interested in a rule number one, which a lot of owners still ignore to their peril, and you wrote, always start your studs. Why? Basically because you know what you're going to get. You're going to get, you know, within, you know, obviously within reason. Um, you know, you expect a 280 ERA from Verlander. You expect a 340 ERA from Sabathia, something like that. If you start to play the game where, all right, he's a Colorado or, or, or this or that, you start to, you know, bench and try to avoid the bad starts, you're going to end up, you know, taking a chance. These guys are some, some of these guys are, you know, are, 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 are immune to this sort of thing. With these guys, I know I'm going to get a 280 or 3-4 or whatever it is. Just put them in there, and that's what you're going to get. Get all 32 starts at the end of the year. You get what you're supposed to get. If you try to time it, if you try to, if you try to get the good stuff and turn a and turn a three four into a three one, you get just as much of a chance of turning into a three seven with fewer innings and that sort of thing. So I mean, I, I just I some of these guys I just know you know if you know what you're going to get, get it. You know some other guys that are fringe, 
Yeah, I mean, you know, the Tim, well, it's Tim Stoff is hurt. I'm not sure. I'm not sure why Tim Stoff is my go-to streaming guy, but he seems to be. Uh, when you know Clayton Richard, uh, you know, he, you know, I'm not going to put him in there and just let him go. I'm going to put him in for home starts. But you know, I'm, I'm I am going to just you know put Clayton Kershaw. You know, if he's at Colorado, so what? You know what? I don't care. I'm going to get a you know a two nine ERA by season's end, and that's all I care about. Yeah, I think that's right. Do you think the same thing's true of hitters? No, you know what? No, with, with stud hitters, no. There's no exceptions. I'll, I'll put I'll put my left-handed batter up again. You know, I'll put David Ortiz against you know well it won't, won't be Kershaw because it's because it's an interleague and they may not have him play. If it's if the Dodgers are at Fenway and Ortiz is in the lineup, I'm not sitting Ortiz because he's going up against Kershaw. He may not be the same hitter. He may be a little bit less of a hitter, but he's 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 still better than uh, than starting a lesser player just because they have a, in theory a better matchup. Todd, one of your roundtable discussions at KFFL.com, which is a terrific thing that you do, addressed the question of. Uh, Bryce Harper versus Mike Trout, and this is a hot debate in the prospect circles and now in big league circles. And I thought someone on the discussion made a really excellent point that uh, Bryce Harper's all-out maximum effort approach, in one sense, one of your roundtable nights saw this as Josh Hamilton-type performance potential, but another guy saw a Josh Hamilton injury potential. So let me ask you first, which way do you see the Josh Hamilton comparison, performance or injury? And second, just in general, whether you like Harper or whether you like Trout? Well, of course, I mean, you know, here we go with, with you know, with the comparison sort of thing. There's always, you know, what do you really mean? How much of Hamilton's injury problems are due to his extracurricular activities, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, I know the general question isn't so much Josh Hamilton, but, you know, is, is, is Harper more injury prone, and does that go into the, does that go into the, uh, you know, the equation? I mean, I don't, I, don't know that, I don't know that J.D. Drew was an all-out, you know, guy, maximum effort guy, and he certainly had trouble staying on the field. So I don't know that I would, I don't know that I would worry about the injury myself, I mean, stuff happens. I mean, you know, some people may compare Mike Trout to Jacoby Ellsbury, and and he's he's had some injury issues. So I, I I'll 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 let the injury stuff. I mean, it stuff happens, especially nowadays. I don't think you can predict it. So I'm just going to call that call that a wash, uh, and just you know kind of look at the two based upon you know playing to win, not playing to lose. And playing to win means I don't worry about the injuries. Okay, so who do you like, Harper or Trout? Oh man. Uh, doesn't really matter because I'm going to trade him to, to to win this year anyway. Either one of them, but I, you know what? And if, I, I guess it's Trout. Uh, I, I'll take the contact rate and and I'll, I'll take the somewhat more rounded of of the player. Uh, I think that he, in an off year, I think Trout. It's going to sound really maybe not so. Hopefully, it makes sense. In Trout's down years, he's going to have more value than Harper in his down years uh, because of the speed and the batting average. If they happen to struggle, so I'll, I think Trout, long term, will have you know overall uh, a better career fantasy wise. Although in any individual year, Harper could outdo Trout. Good points. Uh, you also posed a very interesting question in that same roundtable, where you asked all the participants to say who they thought beyond Trout and Harper, might be the top picks in a 2017 fantasy draft, so five years down the road. There were some interesting names, but let me ask you, uh, who would you like for that 2017 draft outside of Trout and Harper? You know what, right now, and this is kind of one of the points I was making, was, was, uh, was you, know, you know, don't get carried away. <laughs> don't get carried away. Um, you know what, I, you know, it's still Ryan Braun for me. 
he's only going to be 33. Um, I, he may not be running as much, but, I mean, these guys like the A-Rods and the Pujols, they have staying power as far as the uh, rankings go. Um, so, I mean, I, even even Miggy, I, I just I just I, I'll I'll take I'll take Miggy and Braun. Braun runs a little more, so I'll stick with Braun, and I'll let everybody else, you know, say Desmond Jennings and Harper or Starlin Castro. Um, you know, in three years, I may change my mind if uh, if Castro goes nuts, but right now, I'm a tried and true sort of guy. Yeah, I agree that when you're looking at five years down the road, if you can find a guy who's still in his late twenties or mid to late twenties. Five years from now is not the end of his career, and in fact, we used to say that peak was what twenty-seven to thirty-two, something like that. Now they think it's more like twenty-six to thirty-five because they're taking better care of themselves, they have better uh, access to medical care, and so on. And so I agree with you on on Ryan Braun. Another guy I like is Joy Votto. This is a guy who's just coming into the peak of his career. He he uh, pops up what once or twice a year, maybe hits the ball hard. He runs the base as well. It plays a relatively undemanding defensive position, and and what about pitchers like Steven Strasburg comes to mind, uh, although some injury risk there. But you know David Price, there's a guy who's proved already at a relatively young age that he can do it at the major league level. Why wouldn't you want to to pick that guy for a five year uh, futures option? Yeah, uh, priming. I think Kershaw's still young enough that he has to be in the equation, and uh, I'm still a Matt Moore. of all the guy. I think you know this. Time- not so much this time last year, but yeah, this time last year, you know, Matt Moore was all the rage. So he, he comes out and he struggles and he suddenly can't pitch anymore. He's, and to me, he's still got this, you know, the smoother mechanics than, uh, than say, a Strasburg. He's still a guy that I'm looking at long-term to be, uh, you know, to be a perennial Cy Young candidate. Be an interesting game to play, wouldn't it, Todd, if you, if you said to somebody, okay, we're going to have a draft and we're going to draft uh, this off season, but we're not going to run the season till 2017 or, or whenever down the road, and there'll be no transactions in the meantime, of course, because that would defeat the purpose. But, you know, everybody throws in 50 bucks, and you invest it in something, and five years down the road, just the winner takes all or something like that. Maybe we should set something like that up. It's well, something just, I'll have to think about. you trying to give me more work. That's, uh, just, yeah, that's what we, what we all need is another game to play, right? Get Zola to do it. He knows how to use Excel. Yeah, well, we all know how to use <laughs> Excel. The, the problem is finding the time to use Excel, I guess, for all of us. Uh, fi- finally, Todd, um, in the Baseball HQ roundtable that we held last week, I asked the guys for some picks to click in the second half, uh, and I'd like to ask you to do the same for our listeners. Let's start with a National League pitcher. Who do you think is a pick to click? I think Matt Latos is going to you know get over the fact he's not in petco learn how to pitch in uh in the gab and 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 have a much better second half on the american league side i'm still a dan heron guy i know the injuries there but if someone is is saying he's a second half first half pitcher and yada 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 i'm i'm still i'm still getting dan heron how about a national league batter who's a pick to click i'm going to go brian mccann uh, i just think that his the batting average is not he's not a 235 hitter and i think that's due to rise and always good to get a catcher on the low and uh, how about an american league batter I'm going to go with a guy that I see play, and that's uh, Ryan Kalish. Uh, I've done this for your, your your spring first pitch tours the past couple of years. Where you you take a guy and you, you all you do is you give you, you look at the skills. You you take the the batting uh, the, the plate appearances. You make them equal for absolutely everybody, so that you know that playing time is out of the equation. And Kalish has shown up pretty high on this list for the past couple of years. So now we get to see because he's going to be playing some. So I think Kalish is a nice little find in AL leagues. On the flip side, how about some picks to crash in the second half? A National League pitcher? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm split between Miley and Gio, uh, Gio Gonzalez. 
I'm not sure, you know, which which one is more of a, uh, you know, more of a shocking sort of, you know, I should focus on. I just, Miley, uh, I know the walk rate's good, but it's got to catch up to him. And I, I want to see Gio keep that, that low walk rate and that hit rate over the course of an entire year. So uh, I think Gio's more of a, of, a, of a name, so I'm going to say Gio's the one that's going to crash. Gio Gonzalez of Washington and Wade Miley, of course, of Arizona. Uh, how about an American League pitcher? Yeah, this might not be so sexy, but I'll go with Yin Chen. Uh, I think people, you know, you know, he's done better than we thought, but I think things are going to catch up to him over the second half, and it might be a good time to get out now. A National League batter who's a pick to crash? Uh, I'm still not convinced that Dexter Fowler's all that. He still needs to make more con- He either needs. He, everybody says he's a power speed guy. Well, to me, he needs to be one or the other because he's not quite good enough at both uh, and with that contact rate anyway. So I, to me, he's, he's still not – this is not the breakout, you know, 20, 20, 30, 30 guy just yet. And finally, an American League batter is a pick to crash. You know what? I think it's a little too early to start calling Jason Kipnis the next Chase Utley. Um, he's good. He's a little better than we thought. He's making better contact. But the steals – are not likely to sustain, and, you know, let's see what happens when the league adjusts to him. So if I have Kipnis, um, I'm I'm not, I mean, I don't think he's going to be bad, but I don't think he's going to match the first half numbers. All right, Todd, tell our listeners where they can catch up with you, and it's a long list. (laughs) Well, basically, I mean, everything everything comes out of Masters Ball. Uh, That's my home. Uh, Everything else is sort uh, sort of a visitor. So I, you know, Masters Ball is still the place. I do some freelance work for ESPN, and with our association with Masters Ball, uh, you know, we've got a, a content share with our, with our good friends at KFFL. You guys do as well. Uh, so you know, we mention the roundtable once a week. I get together with some uh, the, the, the Masters Ball crowd and the KFFL crowd, and we uh, we, we we go back and forth on a uh, on a question, and, and sometimes we invite some guests and. Heck, we even had a tout rule change because of the, the Masters Ball roundtable at some point. Uh, so that's that's sort of, you know, Masters Ball, ESPN for freelance, and then once in a while I'll pop up on KFFL. And I can vouch for all three of them uh, if you want to read some very interesting, well-thought-out, well-researched information about fantasy baseball. You can't do better than Todd Zola at any one of those locations. Todd, thanks very much for joining us this week. Uh, we're going to get you back, I promise. You know, and once in a while, I'm on your boards, too, so you can find me there. That's right, on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Todd, thanks very much. All right. That's Todd Zola of MastersBall.com. We'll have our regular weekly commentaries next. This is Baseball HQ Radio. You are challenged by the game of baseball to do your very best day in and day out. And that's all I've ever tried to do. Thank you. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular weekly commentaries. We have Matt Beagle on deck with his market pulse. BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler's taking the week off, so I'll be pinch hitting with master notes. And leading off the minor league minute, BaseballHQ.com minor league expert Rob Gordon telling us about Pittsburgh second base prospect Alan Hansen. The Pittsburgh Pirates' Alan Hansen has seen his stock rise as much as any prospect in baseball this year. The 19-year-old switch-hitting second baseman signed as a non-drafted free agent from the Dominican Republic in 2009. In his U.S. debut last year, he had an uninspired 260 with just two home runs and 208 at-bats, but he did show good athleticism and stole 24 bags as an 18-year-old. 
This year, Hansen has been nothing short of an offensive force, and through 70 games, he is hitting 324 with a 385 on base percentage and a very impressive 570 slugging percentage. He already has 22 doubles, 9 triples, 10 home runs, and 19 stolen bases and 284 at-bats. Hansen has plus speed and defensively has good range at second base, though his arm is considered below average. Still, top-notch second base prospects can be difficult to find, especially at a young age, so Hansen is worth rostering in all deep keeper league formats. Hansen will get a better test once he reaches high A and double A, but for now, Alan Hansen is one of the more interesting second base prospects in baseball. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ minor league analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, Rob Gordon, Jeremy Deloney, and Colby Garropy have reports and updates on organizational moves, daily call-ups reports, and everything you need to keep tabs on those rising stars. Jeremy's call-up reports this week have already looked at the hot Texas right-handed pitching prospect Martin Perez, eagerly awaited Cubs first baseman Anthony Rizzo, he's finally in the big leagues, Oakland right-hander A.J. Griffin, Tampa right-hander Alex Torres, and many more. And Colby Garropy's watch list column looks at a couple of Orioles farmhands who are poised to produce at the big league level. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now the Market Pulse with BaseballHQ.com columnist Matt Beagle talking this week about when we will see creative lineup construction like Colorado's creative pitching rotations. It's amazing how much buzz has been generated by Colorado's new pitching rotation. It's great to see such creative thinking, and I'm looking forward to that same creativity being used to batting lineups to improve run production in the major leagues. Outside of Joe Madden, no one's really thinking outside the box with lineup construction. And Madden does it so often that there really doesn't seem to be any strategy he's mixing and matching every day. I think that's excellent, as every day he's creatively thinking about his lineup, how to maximize it with the players he has at his disposal against the pitcher and lineup he's facing. But what are some general conclusions we can make? As Madden, who grew up 20 miles down the road from where I live in central Pennsylvania, I want to think about some other creative things I've learned over the years in simulation lineups and some studies that I've read. For example, one run production technique is to pinch hit for your pitcher in the National League every time through the lineup. Now, maybe you might save him a sacrifice bunt here or there, but generally if you pinch hit for the pitcher every time through the lineup, it's been proven that you'd score more runs than you'd save. Plus, you'll be using fresher pitchers, using the Rockies lineup theory, that the fresher pitchers through the lineup the first and second times uh, get more outs. Pitchers are generally much weaker the third time through the lineup. David Price, for example, is excellent through the lineup the first two times. Opponents bat around 226, I believe it was, I heard earlier this week. But they bat almost 300 the third time through the lineup against David Price. Here's a great pitcher with some specific statistics that talk about how much worse he is the third time through the lineup. What about when Tony Larusa batted the pitcher eighth? Many studies have been done show that having the ninth hitter be a good hitter that can set the table for the top year lineup will produce more runs than having a light hitting pitcher who sacrifices or strikes out. How about batting your best hitters at the top of the lineup, first, second, third, to try to get more at-bats? Over a 162-game season, you'll probably get 30 or 40 more at-bats from your first, second, and third hitters compared to the rest of your lineup. So instead of looking at your top hitter as a leadoff guy, and your second hitter as someone who can advance that runner, 
maybe also having some speed, maybe you could put the best hitters at the top of your lineup and therefore give them more at-bats over the year and score more runs. I can tell you managing my own little league team and watching other managers, they're putting their top hitters at the top of the lineup so they can get more at-bats because if you're going to get one extra at-bat for a kid in the game, you want it to be your best hitter. So most of my little league lineups even, just like simulation, are often my best hitter batting first to give him that one extra chance for another at-bat. The leadoff hitter only leads off once in a game. And finally, one that I feel most compelled about is that the leadoff hitter having your most speed seems counterintuitive to me if you follow a traditional lineup method. If your best power hitters are hitting 3, 4, and 5, why would you put your best base dealers 1 and 2? You know you're not going to run as much. You're going to wait for those big home runs to be hit, especially if you have a powerful lineup. So you're wasting your speed at the top of the lineup. Instead, I would bat speed, hit and run, and bunting guys with good bat control at the bottom of the lineup. Looking at the, my hometown Philadelphia Phillies, for example, Jimmy Rollins, I don't like his leadoff hitter. He has low on base. They did it with Juan Samuel throughout his entire career, a low on base but high slugging percentage hitter at the top of the lineup just because he was fast. Batting them 6-7-8, batting Jimmy Rollins, Placido Polanco, and Carlos Ruiz 6-7-8, for example, you can use their bat control and use Jimmy Rollins' speed, maybe Shane Victorino as well, we're running out of players here, I realize, but the theory holds the same. Having speedy guys in the second half of your lineup with good bat control guys, here you can sacrifice bunch your pitcher, here you can hit and run, here you can take advantage of players who know how to put the ball in play and hit the ball to the right side to advance the runner. Here you're free to steal bases because you're not taking the bat out of the hand of one of your top hitters. So I look forward to lineup theory thoughts from creative thinkers that are in the game, just like we've seen from the Colorado pitching. If not, you can be that person with the creative thoughts in your simulation formats as you formulate lineups and also try to protect your left-handed hitters who are susceptible to left-handed relievers and all the other things you have to worry about in your lineups. With a market pulse for Baseball HQ, I'm Matt Beagle. Matt Beagle's columns on a variety of fantasy baseball topics appear regularly at BaseballHQ.com. Now it's Master Notes with BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler. Ron's out of the lineup this week in Las Vegas. He's attending business meetings. At least that's what he told the missus. So I'll pinch hit for the boss, and like Matt Beagle, I'll also discuss the Colorado experiment in their pitching rotation. I'm with Matt on this. I think the Colorado experiment with their pitching rotation is really interesting, and it could have important ramifications for real baseball and for fantasy baseball. In his Market Pulse, as you just heard, Matt used the Colorado experiment as a springboard to talk about other possible changes in lineup management. I'm going to just look at what the Rockies are doing. Now, if you haven't heard about it, the Rockies have said they're going to greatly reduce the pitch counts of their starting pitchers. They believe that because their park is so high up, almost a mile high, their pitchers get fatigued more quickly than they would at sea level, and therefore they lose effectiveness. So what they're going to do is use just four starters, but go into each game with a starter and a second pitcher pre-designated to throw a total of about 135 pitches. They think this will let both guys pitch harder because neither of them will have to pace himself for a possible 120-pitch performance. Holding down starter pitch counts will let each starter pitch more games. A typical five-man rotation, as we know, gives each starter 34, 35, maybe 36 starts in a season. A four-man rotation increases that to 40 or 41 starts. 
And let's face it, why wouldn't you want more starts from your best starters? So what the Rockies will say is, just go all out for those 70 or 75 pitches. If they get 140 pitches of quality pitching, they'll get to their bullpen in good shape to close out what would be a thoroughly well-pitched game. Now, it makes sense for a high-altitude team like the Rockies, but does it make sense for sea-level teams? Well, the data suggests the answer is, yes, it does. Let's use times through the batting order as a proxy for pitch counts, and rates per 38 plate appearances as a proxy for rates per 9. We'll call it per 38. In 2011, all the major pitcher skill metrics got worse as starters went through lineups. The first two times through, which is about what you'd expect from a 75-pitch start, starters managed about 7 strikeouts per 38 plate appearances. That fell to 6 strikeouts per 38 the third time through the lineup. That means your starter went from being a Chris Carpenter or Matt Cain level guy to a Kevin Millward or Freddie Garcia. Walks followed the same pattern, although less dramatically, went from about 2.8 per 38 to 2.9. But command ratio fell from a solid 265 level to a borderline 204. And, as you'd expect, home runs per 38 went up from 0.94 per 38 to 107. Okay, you ask, you with your fancy metrics, what did it all mean for on-field results? I'm glad you asked. Hits per 38 rose from 8.6 to 9.4, because hit rate, which reflects in part how hard balls are being hit, rose from 29% to 30%. OPS soared from 714 to 774. And most importantly, runs per 38 rose from 3.9 per 38 the first two times through to 4.5 runs per 38 the third time through. Now, six-tenths of a run per game doesn't sound like a huge deal, but if you prorate it over a 162-game schedule, it's almost 100 runs. And that's a difference of about 10 wins. And as we know, 10 wins is often the difference between playing baseball in October and playing pool. So what's the difference for fantasy owners? Assuming the Rockies enjoy some success, a lot depends on how quickly other teams in Major League Baseball adopt the idea. If adoption is inconsistent across the game, and it probably will be, given how often organizations stick to their guns about the old traditional ways of doing things, we might have to recalibrate starter expectations for teams that do adopt the idea, in some version or other, versus teams that don't adopt the idea. We'd have to think that we'd get significantly better ERA and whip results from the four-man rotations, but maybe fewer wins because of pitch count limitations although those might be offset a little bit by the extra four or five starts per season. We'd also have to take a long look at those second-man long relievers. These could be the best Lima candidates ever, with much greater opportunities to earn vulture-type wins, while also putting up some decent ERA and whip results. We also might have to recalibrate our expectations of pitcher injury risk, which would have the effect of moving really good pitchers up in the ADPs and in our willingness to bid aggressively. Fatigue is implicated in many or most pitching injuries, and pitch counts are implicated in fatigue. So it all adds up. If you reduce the pitch counts, you'll reduce the fatigue, and that could mean fewer injuries and solid starters much less prone to stints on the DL. Finally, we'd also have to expect the current offensive declines to continue or maybe get even worse. Between these advanced pitching ideas and the growth in fielding shifts and those kind of adjustments, it's going to get a lot harder for batters to see pitches they can hit and hit them effectively. 
So like Matt Beagle said a few minutes ago, you really have to like a team willing to be genuinely innovative about things that have been etched in stone pretty much since Abner Doubleday. But baseball is getting out of the Stone Age, and it's going to be extremely interesting to see what happens next. Pinch hitting for BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler. I'm Patrick Davitt. Ron Chandler writes a weekly column every Friday on BaseballHQ.com and has a weekly chat every Wednesday morning at 11 Eastern at USAToday.com. Ron also discusses his columns and other topics in the subscriber forums at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Ron's master notes delivered to your inbox every Friday with the free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for the week of June the 30th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 24 of the 2012 Fantasy Baseball season. Tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and go to iTunes and give us those five stars that we really need to keep on going. I also want to thank our guests today, starting with Todd Zola of MastersBall.com, a regular guest on Baseball HQ Radio, because it's always great to talk with another great guy in a business that's absolutely full of them. I also want to thank our regular guests from BaseballHQ.com. Our league watch analysts were Harold Nichols and Matt Beagle. Of course, Matt was also our Market Pulse columnist this week. Our minor league analyst was Rob Gordon. We have some really great features coming up this week at BaseballHQ.com, on the site now or in the pipeline. Alex Becky has a head-to-head article about tools of the trade, and bullpen columnist Doug Dennis looks at vultures. And like he already wasn't busy enough, Rob Gordon, our minor league analyst, has a preview of the 2012 Futures game. Plus, we'll have our regular features on playing time, facts and flukes, buyer's guides, and more. I'm Patrick Davitt. My batting buyer's guide appears every Tuesday. I also hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember to check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. Thanks again for listening. Join us next week for our mid-season roundtable, Ron Chandler, Ray Murphy, Jock Thompson, and Harold Nichols on the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners, Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.